2: Hey, and welcome back to Success Made, the last author's corner. I'm Rick Tokini. This show is presented by Edward Jones, and our co-founder, Tim Moore, returns to our studio today, and will introduce our very, very special guest.
1: Well, hello. Uh, thank you, Rick. Uh, this is Tim Moore, and I'm here with my son, Zachary, and we will talk about his new book, Mastering the Metal, the story of James Watson and Eddie Bravo. Zach is the principal author, along with James and Eddie.
3: Welcome, Zach. Well, thank you for the introduction, as only you can in this very specific case. Oh, jeez, well, uh, yes, and, uh, just, um, and Rick forget is, about uh, it, right? And listen, tell and Rick me, Rick um, is, uh, an author of yours as well. So you've got you got two of yes, your
1: well, two of a long your authors. time ago in the, the galaxy far, far away.
2: <laughs> That's you right. Know,
1: um, unlike him, the uh, unlike you, I ha- I've not read every word he's ever written. Apparently. that's true. Hey, so Zach, just because it's always good for people who's listening to know a little bit about who they're listening to uh, t- talk a little bit about yourself and start wherever you want. Um,
3: you know, give them a little background, blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, I'm currently, if you can hear in the background, I'm skipping out on MMA practice. You guys have given me a re- a good reason to not get punched in the head today. So I'll just do jujitsu later. I work at 10th good. planet Austin here in town um and that's how i got linked up with eddie bravo eddie is our black belt at the highest level or our uh, as you would call a master in our system and or in any jujitsu system he likes to just be called eddie but uh, he's uh he was trained under Jean Jacques machado and then from there john Jacques came to america in 92 eddie bravo started training with him in the 90s eddie bravo started 10th planet austin in 2003 and now we've made ourselves to where we are now 10th planet austin has three locations uh, I work the front desk, help with sales, do a wide variety of things um help <laughs> do a wide variety of things help deal with a problem customers sometimes <laughs> um but uh you know it's a it's a exciting existence down here uh, all created thanks to Eddie and then I got to write a book uh about the boss our boss here at tenth planet and uh it was a great experience to do so
2: um Tell me about the um the experience of writing a book. In this, in this day and age, especially about one of your heroes, Eddie Bravo?
3: Well, um, we found a really good partner in Post Hill Press. Post Hill gave us, uh, you know, full license to do and say and uh, as we pleased with this project and um, to be able to do something with Eddie. Uh, you know, the book has various things in it. You know, it has a biography to it, but there's also a kind of conspiratorial angle that is Really, if you know Eddie Bravo, you can't go without that. So to have a publisher in the climate in which I was writing the book, uh, because now here we are, I kind of saw six months out, 12 months out, there's a certain amount of stuff that you'll be allowed to say in six to 12 months. And I've hit on the idea and I've hit on the timeline where I'm listening to podcasts and I'm um, hearing the stuff that they're talking about and so many of the themes that people are talking about right now uh, across the spectrum uh, because there are so many themes in the book as well um, that, that hit on this moment in time, thanks to, again, being a someone who's a part of such a large community here. I have a pretty good idea. Um, you know, kind of a journalist, Mark Twain, or somebody smarter than us said, uh, a journalist uh, sits out in the pub and has a drink with the people, uh, or no, a reporter sits out in the pub and has a drink with the people. The journalist has a drink behind closed door with the public official. So, um, Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a really good grasp on, um, you know, as an artist to think of yourself as that, I feel like I have a really good grasp on, uh, kind of what's going on in the world. And, and the publisher allowed me to, uh, speak in, in, in the language that I know, um, and in, in, in the way that I understand the world around me, which is, is difficult at this time. (laughs) You know,
1: in, in high school and college, you weren't what I would call the most, um, Oh, uh, outstanding student. Yeah. And that was mostly uh, not because uh, you weren't the brightest kid in the, in the room or anything like that, but you you re- really latched on to the things that you really, really loved. And, like, the things that you didn't love, you're like, okay, I'll just pass them. And then suddenly you wanted to get an MBA, and you went to Rutgers and got an MBA. And then, you know, when you got out, all of a sudden you wanted to write. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what's that all about? And what was that all about? Because now that we look back and you've been doing that for about eight years and you've written probably, you know, half a million words uh, over the cap and in two books. Um, When did that get started, Zach? Because that came home in a way out
3: of nowhere. Uh, It was kind of like business planning. It kind of gave me, finally gave me the the proper context to uh, understand how to like, it was it was fun to put like a headline for like this is the marketing plan this is the operations plan and then like you knew what was underneath it and so then through that i actually got an idea of how to write like a chapter book what are the main headlines and so you extend out you extend out like that thing you learn in school which is we have an opening paragraph we have three body paragraphs and we have a conclusion now i knew how to do that for more and I've always learned from someone like Russ, uh, who we would come down to Austin to visit or, and you, Rick, you may actually know Russ through working with my dad. Um, yes, sir. Uh, you know, Russ, Russ is, um, you know, he seems to know everything because he's written, <laughs> he's written things. And I also had a mentor, a guy named Joe DeFranco, who was at the forefront of a lot of, uh, putting a lot of content online for free as a trainer. Where other people would have thought like, Oh, I'm giving away too much. He realized that he was bringing more people to him. And now so many people make a living off of their Instagram and their you now it's more on Instagram for like, uh, for people who are in fitness. But Joe Mm -hmm. was writing, he was creating YouTube content and through doing that. Um, I realized that you could become a subject matter expert in something. And I went to go get my MBA so I could be an NFL agent. So I started writing about player contracts. Eventually, I came around to writing about um, writing about uh, how teams spend their money to be successful. Um, and through that, I kind of became a subject matter expert in that field, in the NFL, uh, in sports media. And uh, then I made my way over to here.
1: You know, I've, I've listened to the podcasts that you've done, and they're interesting, you know, to me as a dad and all, you know, because, you know, you do all these things in life with your kids, and, um, you know, you don't have um, necessarily a, a motive in mind other than to do good things that they'll enjoy, and maybe they'll, they'll help them in their development. But in each one of the podcasts, you mentioned Russ uh, Russ Hall and, and Mike Blakely, uh, Mike, of course, is a singer-songwriter, but performs all over Central Texas, um, and has written twenty or twenty-five novels. Books some with of which,
3: Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers. Yeah,
1: well, a book with Willie Nelson, a book with Ken, Kenny Rogers. Um, and as you know, Zach, I, you know, I keep a desert island list of the twenty-five or so books that I would bring with me on a desert island. And Mike's, you know, Mike's got uh, two of on on the list. Yeah, Uh, which is high praise indeed, you know, right next to Hemingway and uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and people like that. But I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, I guess I didn't realize until literally within the last decade that hanging around those guys had sunk in so much to you.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, it's just an example. You know, it's just an example that you can see, right? And so when you uh, look back at your life um, and you wonder why you are the way you are, um, you begin to realize that not everyone had a bunch of books around the house. Like n- some people, they don't really live in houses that have a ton of books. Um, I've always lived in a house that has a ton of books through to today. My girlfriend's got a bunch. I've got a bunch. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that definitely made an impact on me. And then you add in the fact that – and also back then you had to you had to fill your time with something other than your phone or your screen – or your whatever, so there's plenty of time to read, and all the doctors visits or rides I had to doctors visits or things like that. So, um, we just had a culture of reading around the house, and then um, I always had a notebook, and I was always interested in sports, and I wanted to be on ESPN or Sports Center or whatever. Every kid, first thing they say they want to do once they realize maybe I won't go to the NBA, <laughs> maybe I won't go to whatever. Uh, you know, you want to be a sports caster. So, uh, writing became uh, the way into that. And then since then, it's become a, a way to express the world around me. And like I said, I'm, I'm around a lot of people. And I feel like I have a bit of a superpower. And I feel like it's the same superpower that Joe Rogan has, um, which is that when you know a lot of people, and you become someone that people trust to talk to you about various topics, um, you get a really, really clear picture of the world. You know, I, 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 you know, I, as an example, I got shingles, which is a crazy thing to get. I got shingles on my face a few weeks ago. Some doctor comes in and tells me all about some new study he saw about how shingles is on the rise, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we all, (laughs) there's reasons for that. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's, uh, so it's just, I'm always having these interesting conversations and I just, I feel like I have a good pulse on the public and I feel like that's the thing that if I, if I, as I move forward and I have more books, um, whether they're successful and they have great success, I need to maintain that. That's the key important thing is to be around a lot of people, um, and I've had these examples of, of how to write um, since I was a kid. So I feel like that's where my voice comes from now, um, and those are the examples that kind of set me forth through to today. Through to today.
1: One more question, that preliminary to the book itself, but to sort of uh, establish your um when you were writing Caponomics, your book yeah. about how to develop um, a sort of a blueprint for NFL teams to cre- create great teams, you sat down with, with the general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles uh, yes. a year or two before they um, won the Super Bowl. And you gave them some advice, advice that they took. And most people in the media think that that advice, although they didn't know you gave it, um, um, had an awful lot to do with him very quickly after that, winning the Super Bowl. I don't think I've hyperbolized that. If I have, you can push back. But talk about that advice, because it's um, really quite amazing when you consider, I think at the time, you were probably, what, 25,
3: 26? Yeah, I was 25. Uh, The Eagles were in town playing the Jets in their final preseason game in 2015. There was a guy named James Harris. He was the chief of staff, and he was Chip Kelly's right-hand man. Chip Kelly had just become the – general manager and he was already the head coach he had just also become the general manager um but this is an, an organization that like really and they have a ton of stability they got rid of chip and they brought new people in but it was the same kind of regime they'd already done this experiment with andy reed and then they brought in doug peterson and so they basically just looked at what have we gotten before and these are good organizations right like 18 plus. What have we gotten before? They have a blueprint that almost worked. They almost won the Super Bowl with, you know, they went to the NFC Championship game uh, five times with Donovan McNabb, and when you look back at Donovan McNabb, he wasn't like an all-world kind of quarterback. He was, no. he had he had good skill sets. He was, <clears throat> he wasn't that accurate. Um, he was mobile, but he fit what they yeah, did.
1: Dak Prescott would be a really good analog to, uh, to him.
3: A that guy was,
1: good but never, you know, never going to get to the top of the mountain.
3: But, I mean, Dak's Dax more productive than Donovan was, right? And now, Yeah, so,
1: that's probably true.
3: That's probably true. So it, it For sure, because the game has changed, though, too. But point being on that is, like, they – you can see how money is spent, and you can see if you can get, like, a rookie contract quarterback that has the skill set you need, which is accuracy, you know, obviously intelligence, uh, mobility, and you can put him in the similar West Coast offense that – Andy Reid ran, then Doug Peterson, and then that they currently run through to today. Um, you know, they have they've went to the Super Bowl with Carson Wentz uh, as their quarterback, but they made it there with Nick Foles, their backup. Then now we're in the present moment where they got rid of Carson Wentz and they moved on to Jalen Hurts. Rather than invest a ton of money in someone just because he was your first round pick, they moved on from the guy and now they have Jalen Hurts. And he's an MVP candidate type of player. But point being is that If you put the right coaches in place, if you have the right offensive coordinator, if you have a low-cost quarterback, if you have a good offensive line, if you invest some of that money in the people who are going to catch the ball for that quarterback, um, and then you disrupt the other team's offense by putting somebody back there who's uh, putting someone on your defensive line, putting a group of people on your defensive line who are going to disrupt the quarterback's ability to throw. And it's a pass-based game. So – I just I understood the way that people were spending money, um, and I sat down with these guys, uh, had those conversations, and just watched. Since then, as an already good organization followed along with with some of the things that I believed as well.
1: I think you, I think you said uh, somewhere in the book that no no team, only one team in the uh, salary cap era has won the Super Bowl, and that was um, uh, Peyton Manning. Uh one Super uh, Bowl, with, with, with a with a quarterback making more than ten percent of the salary cap.
3: No, it's uh there were like six guys, right? And so it was like, okay. until Patrick Mahomes this year. But okay. Patrick Mahomes is an all-world MVP <laughs> kind of player. we are talking
1: about guys who are generational mm-hmm. talents.
3: So the most expensive guy prior to him was around thirteen percent of the cap, Steve Young on a 1994 49ers team that did a bunch of stuff in, uh, November of 1993 to avoid the salary cap that was coming the next year. So right. they like moved a bunch of money around to make sure that they could fall under. So there was some extenuating circumstances there and then continue that down point being that the point you're trying to make that is that, is that we've got six quarterbacks who have won now seven who have won super bowls, making over 10% of the cap. And they're all like hall of fame kind of players. You know, it's the Manning brothers and Eli. You can have an argument whether he's an all Hall of Famer. Those were also two like pretty weak Giants teams as well. So it was it was an odd, it was almost a, a happy accident that they won. Yeah, and then but, after he got
1: paid, the Giants couldn't win again.
3: Yeah, so it's it's um you know that it, it I found the patterns for success in the sport and uh, pretty quickly and and got a lot of respect for it and a lot of uh, attention for it and and it was uh you know those are that's really what got me through to today and proved that I could take on a project like the one that I just completed and will have coming out next week.
1: Well, speaking of which, how did this thing come about? Um, I mean, I know the story, but the people listening don't.
3: Uh, I was very interested in the COVID story. So I was like constantly, I, I was taking notes on everything. And Curtis gave me, uh, Curtis is my black belt here. Um, he's our uh, moonhead, or our owner here. And he's Eddie's right-hand man. We were just we would have conversations about like I just needed something to put my energy into creatively um, because I moved away from the football stuff and I, I, I wasn't sure what was next. And, and uh, you know, I, I started with a book proposal. Curtis and I spoke. I started with a book proposal, uh, eventually put it in Eddie's hands. We got it to Post Hill Press, took a few months making sure that the contracts Uh, where, uh, you know, what we needed them. And then I, I, that was about a six month to a year process, uh, through all that. A lot of note taking, knowing where I was starting to go with this. And then in January of last year, I flew out to LA and then I basically wrote the book, uh, through the prism of that trip. And I, and I crossed between my trip and my time there and the experience of being in LA in January of 2022, which was a unique experience. Um, and then uh, I write, you know, about Eddie in the present moment. And then I go back in time and I have James explain Eddie and their past together and, and, and wha- what brought them both to the current moment. And I, and I get to tell a story of friendship and brotherhood that also carries us through to why is Eddie Bravo who he is today, which uh, a lot of people are going to be interested in because of uh, the Bruce Lee nature of, of who he is to this generation
1: When um, you must have learned something from Ross, maybe a little from me too, because you know how much we've talked about the first page test in any book. Yeah. Don Imish Imish used to call it the first paragraph test. Uh, And and the notion being, uh, for those who don't know about it, that if the first page doesn't grab you, pick up another book. And um, the first page and the first chapter of this book is just fabulous. It's just, I mean, it's
2: it grabs you.
1: After I after I read it in first draft, well, I called you Zach and I said to you, "Jesus, what are you doing? Channeling Hunter S. Thompson?" And you said, "Yes." And I remember thinking to myself, and I didn't follow up on this with you. Well, when did you read Hunter S. Thompson? I remember that.
3: Uh, I have a. I think that's fear and loathing on the campaign trail. So I've read as I have with many books, I've read about 75% of it. Uh, I'm the worst with that. I get excited about something next, but I've read most of that. Uh, And then I have uh, some of his like uh, just shorter stuff. And now I'm currently actually reading in cold blood because now that I have the book done, Mm. I have this ability to kind of now look at the kind of style of writing that I have. (laughs) um, And, I guess it was called like a new, it was like called new journalism at the time, but it was people who they were like setting you in the time rather than just telling you about it. And in my book, I'm I'm a main char- one of the main three main characters of the book, um, so I, I get a little bit further into that. And I guess that might be what Hunter did as well. Um, yeah, Kate Hunter, Hunter put like,
1: himself in the story. <clears throat> Capote Capote makes makes it feel like a novel. Tom yeah. Wolfe almost puts himself in it. And then Hunter S. Thompson just blows the thing up and well, you know, and makes himself a character.
3: Well, uh, I, I had uh, uh, Ink Cold Blood, and then the other two books that I bought recently were Tom Wolfe. So you're right on, because those are the names that came up for me. And um, what do you got right there? Uh, oh, it mingle. must be
1: time. Well, listen, uh, you, why don't we just uh, come back to that, Zach? But right now, okay. Rick is signaled. But it is time to throw it back to him, as they say in radio parlance,
2: for a commercial. And we will be right back after this uh, commercial message from our sponsor. Hi, everybody.
0: This is Cliff Rose. I'm one of the inventors of the Thermojo temperature-controlled heating coffee mug. I'm calling from beautiful downtown Fairfield, Iowa, and I'm sitting here enjoying a perfect cup of coffee with the new Thermojo heating coffee mug. The Thermojoe solves the age-old problem of your coffee getting cold fast, like before the end of a phone call. And if you're a tea drinker, we have you covered as well with our custom tea infuser. Check it all out at Thermojoe.com and use promo code SUCCESS1 and get a 20% discount. That's a really good deal. Just visit us at Thermojoe.com. That's Thermojoe.com.
2: Author Zach Moore, Mastering the Metal debuts march the twenty eighth make sure and purchase it wherever books are available. I did a little review today. I think every major chain has up a uh, the log line on it, so you guys have done a great job of marketing it so far and I gotta sneak in a question before uh Tim continues after reading this i'm I came to the conclusion that you're kind of flying above a whole genre. And you did you did the same thing with your other book? It's like, how are you becoming this master of recognizing patterns and flying b- above a ecosystem?
3: Well, that's that's a very nice compliment. I'm going to clip that out and I'm going to put it somewhere. Uh, it's very very good, so I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I uh, one of Eddie's superpowers is identifying patterns, and I think that jujitsu um, is definitely a game of like identifying complex patterns. I didn't tell you yet, Dad, but uh I will be on Thursday Night Jiu Jitsu this week so you can watch on, on YouTube. I'll be competing. Oh wow, uh, cool. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? It, it, Why? Uh, I decided to. So it'll it'll give oh. a little bit more uh a <laughs> little bit more marketing and everything for the book and a little bit more attention. But uh you can sure. come on down to the gym and check that out. But uh What's power on? recognition, I'm just it's I think that's the superpower that Eddie has and I think it's uh I just what is the Like the football thing, like what is the most important, interesting thing in football? Um, One of the things I realized when I realized I didn't want to write about football anymore was um, this kind of cycle that the average like football writer has. Like in January, you write about this in, you know, February, March, you know what you're writing about every year. You just change what you're writing about slightly. Um, So what I really want to get to the heart of is like, let's answer all the questions. Let's get to the most important thing. Um, and that's that's what I did there, and and I think with Eddie too is just, uh, you know, he talked about it with music and everything. It's just, uh, it's the ability to identify patterns. That's that's the superpower you're trying to figure out. So to hear that you're seeing that, and just with my dad as the editor over the years, many years, is what's the three thousand foot view, uh, thirty thousand foot view, right? Like so, uh, how do you, you know, give something that has an overarching important theme to it, um, and then keep people engaged with it long enough I mean I'm trying to keep you engaged for like eight hours with a book so um, how do I tell you something important um, but put it in a story
1: Zach I'm I'm, I'm obsessed with the first chapter so I'm gonna read a little bit only because <laughs> well, that's what I'm gonna do damn it and I'm gonna skip the first uh, four or five lines which are which are a dialogue only because the dialogue I'm, won't translate well on
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus. Uh, uh, here, you're not. You're not I'm the best drop voice
1: down actor. to the fifth. I'm going to drop down to the fifth line, and you'll also understand why in a minute. Welcome to Los Angeles, California, a place where people from all over the world flock to be seen, is being run by a fear so heavy that many are willingly covering their faces and consciously voting for more mandates while they try to force the rest of us to take part in a lie they can't let go of. Cover my mouth. Stick it in me. Tell me what to do. Govern me harder. The only... Drop down a few more paragraphs, making a comparison. The only people in Texas that seem that seem to still hold on to masks are the politicized administrators in charge of the big city public schools. The very cadence of that is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, um, it doesn't exactly um, – it does a pretty good job of, um, uh, of letting a, a few of the themes of the book uh, uh, sort of get out there immediately. So talk about that, the, the obvious themes there, but some of the others that begin to weave its way into this book.
3: So, I mean, <clears throat> one of the biggest takeaways was, like, there was like 90% mask compliance outside in LA when I went in January, 2022. So I later, again, I think to quote like Mark Twain, it's like uh, travel makes you uh, travel, gets rid of all of your bigotry or all of your, you know, it makes you just know more about the world, obviously. Right. But the traveling for me was like this shocking. It was like, I was going to this new, like this different place, because in Texas we had been done with all that stuff for a while other than at the schools that my girlfriend's kids go to, because uh, they're currently at Austin uh, Independent School District, and uh, so that's why I had to slip that in there too. Because even when I was writing this, they had just stopped take they had just let the kids take masks off. So uh, yeah, meanwhile you know, was in the town little, I
1: live in, they 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 had masks for like an hour and fifteen minutes.
3: Yeah, so I mean, it was just it was I wanted to capture that moment, right? And that's that's really the main theme is that to understand Eddie is to know him through the prism of like a lot of these appearances with Joe Rogan and, and even his current podcast look into it. Um, it is to know that like, he's a big time like into conspiracies and trying to unravel the grand conspiracy. And, and really while the book has a, a an aspect to it that is very um, about, you know, it's very biographical. I also wanted to include like, if you're, I wanted to give you Eddie's whole, kind of narrative in one book trying to give him like the whole grand conspiracy, which is like, you know, we're even seeing it like in current events right now. And it's really becoming obvious and more and more clear by the day, especially considering the news that's come out on Tucker and things like that about um, JFK and and who may have killed him. Um, So the whole narrative is kind of an explanation of how has our system been co-opted by money or by the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, I even just give you, like, really an understanding of, like, the military-industrial complex. After World War II, there were 3 million uh, military jobs. And so there's no politically feasible strategy to get rid of 3 million jobs. So we've kind of been in this constant state of looking for the next fight forever. Um, And a lot of times when you tie the CIA into it, there's a lot of drug trafficking involved in those. It sounds so crazy to say this. Uh, but it's, it's, it's what needs, it's the truth, but there's a lot of uh, drug trafficking involved in like the Vietnam War in the Iran culture, uh, Iran Contra. And it's not like Republican or Democrat. It's like, a Republican Vice President, George H.W. Yeah, Bush, the uniparty
1: Party, the uniparty uni Party, party. Right?
3: George George H.W. Yeah. Bush, uh, yeah. the CIA, former head of the CIA, is the VP. They're running drugs through uh, Mena, Arkansas, where Bill Clinton's the president, uh, the governor at the time. And there's even a movie about it, American Made, with Tom Cruise in it. So there's all of these various things, and what I feel like the most important thing you can share is the whole thing in one place. And I tried to give everybody the whole thing in one place because you can watch American made and you can see the stuff that Hollywood puts out, but you might not have the whole story. And I mean, even through to today, I mean, what, what did we do in Afghanistan? What did we do in Iraq? How much money did we spend? And so um, I cover a lot of that. I cover an interesting thing I found out was Walt Disney was an FBI special asset from 1940 until his death. And the day after Pearl Harbor, the military took over Disney Studios at a time where Disney was kind of floundering because he kept over investing and over extending his business, um, and so it's there's there was just this, a lot of narrative and and uh,
2: yep. Did you write this as if there's going to be a, a sequel to it? Because you pack so much into one book.
3: Oh yeah there there could be a there could be a sequel to it in terms of um, we kind of cut it off at two thousand three. Um, And what I really, as I sit back in the book being done, what I really like is uh, the idea of being able to figure out another way to write in this, in this form of like, I went and I did something, I had the conversations, and I weave it all through the book. Um, And, and 10th Planet has been around for 20 years now. So this will, this will be our 20th year this July, this June. And, um, you know, there's Mm -hmm. 20 years there that we haven't really covered. So, there's, there's plenty of room for another one.
1: You know, Zach, you were talking about conspiracy theories. And, you know, four or five years ago, I, I've heard people say about it, oh, he's just that consp- uh, conspiracy theory nut. Yeah. You know, what's the mean now? What's the mean now on, uh, in, on the internet? Uh, uh, what's the difference between um, disinter- dis- disinformation and the conspiracy theory and the truth? About four
3: months. Yeah. Uh, so, or I mean, in the case of like- the
1: 100 uh, Biden laptop, two years. So um, we've got,
3: we've got Alex Jones in town here too, and I've hung out with Alex enough where uh, I, I always tell people this because I get a kick out of it. It's funny. Last time I saw him, he's like, "Hey, good to see you again." So I'm on good to see you again terms with Alex Jones. But every time I, <laughs> every time I,
1: <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how much I would publicize that, but that's okay. But, but uh, so that's why America's America, you
3: know. Every time I, uh, I was actually at his, his. Uh, his premiere for a documentary that came out about him, and I was like, I got nervous halfway through the documentary. When I looked around the room, I was like, "This is a good room to get rid of a bunch of like people." So I was like, "There's a lot of troublemakers in this room, man, including hey, myself."
1: Of, um, you know, uh, you, um, you, I've heard you talk not only in the podcast, but you know, with with me and your sister and your mother and uh, and others about um, the the. So i think really the joy of, of the of the tenth planet tribe that you get uh, particularly in a world um that seems to have gone mad uh that seems to be led by uh pathological liars etc cetera, etc cetera. talk a little bit about you
3: know the the tenth planet tribe and how any engenders that i mean it's it's a artist community right so first and foremost like it's like, we just had a boxing class. Andrew Craig, our MMA, MMA coach, uh, r- runs a boxing class on Tuesdays. And uh, we had Ellis Bullard in there, a country music musician here in town. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Honky-tonk. Sounds exactly how the stuff that – dad, the stuff that you would love to listen to. Um, we had a guy named Uncle Laser in, who's a comedian. We have another one of my buddies, Eli. He was in, a comedian. We had a bass player for – Um, another band here in town, all in this one class. And then you got me at the front desk, the writer, it's, it's a great community of uh, artists. So you kind of feel understood. Um, we can disagree on things here. Um, but we also, uh, it's a very tight knit activity because you have to trust people to not hurt you when you're basically fighting full fledged, uh, every single time you roll. Um, You know, and and that, what does Eddie engender with that? He engenders this ability to profit off of being yourself, which a lot of these artists and a lot of other people need to hear as well. Um, So that has been really a a major um, thing that I've seen as I've become, it's given me the license to be myself. And also the fact that we have so many students and we engage with so many different people on a daily basis, when everything feels like it could be going mad um, for us, um, to, to be in a space that where the world wasn't going mad these last few years was, uh, was a major relief, uh, especially early on. Um, to come in here and just train like everything was normal uh, probably saved a few lives.
2: You know, after reading Mastering the Metal, we started studying the benefits of mixed martial arts and learned about balance and discipline and how toddlers are actually... Now taking mixed martial arts. And of course our grandson is at the center of our lives right now. And as we look at all this and start connecting all the dots, we're wondering about the impact of mixed martial arts on toddlers. When is it the best time to start?
3: My girl, my girl's actually got two kids and uh, they're 14 and 11 now. And, um, Man, uh, they got started. Matteo was nine and Luca was like eight. So, uh, what's the earliest? We actually have a taught class that starts at four. Uh, and then we have a kids class that starts at seven. The four year olds, we're just trying four or five early six year olds. Then if you're, if you can focus, we can send you on to the next class. But, you know, it's first you're trying to get them to understand like how to move, um, in the various movements. Um, but then over time, then you're starting to have them learn techniques. And then along with learning techniques, they eventually get to roll and they eventually you get to like spar a little bit, which is the most fun part of it all. But the hardest thing about being a kid is uh, I see this with some of the kids here is sometimes these kids get light years ahead of everyone else and now no one else their size is as good as them. So it becomes, a, it's a, it's a difficult uh, thing when you're a kid because I'm five foot nine, five foot 10, 175 pounds. I can roll with everybody from 135 pounds to 215 pounds and have a, a fairly competitive role. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's the most fun thing you can do. And that's kind of one of the interesting things too, is that like, it's, it's like an adult sport almost too, in a sense that we're all out here like trying to stay in shape we can have so much fun and all these different training partners. Um, and that's the most fun thing to me is I can get a different role, every, you know, a different sparring session every day here. Um, and the kids program, our kids program is growing um, and hopefully it continues. The whole sport continues to grow and you can find a good kids program where we have where you have a bunch of kids that are around the same competitive level. So that they can really uh, grow together and, and have a good tight knit group as they get older and as they get bigger and as they start to separate in size, um, because that's I mean, you just use the most fun thing you could do, um, you know, with your body. It's like part. I mean, it's like I saw uh, Sean O'Malley. He was talking about smoking weed and rolling, and he was like, "It's like going to a party. It's like the most fun you could have." And he, sugar Sean O'Malley is like one of the most, like top uh, bantamweights in the UFC, and he's just like it's a hilarious video. He's like, "It's just like having. It's like going out for a party. Like it's it's the most fun." So uh, any any kid would enjoy that. And the other important thing I think too is that all these sports that I played growing up, there's an end date in mind, right? It's whenever you're done with school or whenever they stop telling you you can play. You know, no one wants you to go to the NFL, you're done. Yeah, it's and so there's no season to it, and it's like a constant progression. It's something that you're constantly, you're always going to have a hole in your game too. So we have a striking mat and we have a jiu-jitsu mat. So if you feel like you have a huge hole in your striking and also the kids' program has striking and jujitsu. So, I mean, it's, it's, there's always something to work on. It's, it's a crazy fun, uh, lifelong journey. And I I don't, you know, I I don't know how long I'll be doing it, but I'll be doing it as long as I can. Um, the book, such a book is such an undertaking that, uh, it reminds me of the mindset that I had like around like sports, like really hard nose and like really like almost sometimes like you're like jamming your head up against the wall like that. It's a very, like, put your head, like grind your teeth and work kind of, kind of endeavor sometimes. Um, As much as you don't tell yourself it's like that when it's happening, like, trust me, my, I was grinding my teeth in, in last July. Um, So to take a second to be like, Hey, what's next for me? Um, I, I answered the biggest question. I felt compelled to answer in football, which was how do you win? Um, so then, once I looked at that, I was like, and I looked at what the other opportunities were as a writer there, and I saw myself as more of like a. It just felt like I would be going through the motions. So I wanted to, you know, what what was speaking to me was all of these, the very the story of our lives that was kind of. I mean, I'm thirty. I was thirty when COVID started. So to have gone through the financial crisis of 2008 and to have basically spent my entire adult life in this tentative economy and then to have it actually doing well and then to have it get tanked again, it was, it's the story of my life for sure, because I'm, I'm 32. I'm looking at, I mean, the amount of impact it's had on me and the people around me, Uh, a lot of us came out on top and and feel like we're stronger for it because we're in Austin. Um, But that moment of reflection and that ability to reflect and see yourself and others and see how others treat you and and see that you talk about the journey Uh, I was a very, I was a much more unserious person when I wrote my first book. Um, but now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at this, I'm, I'm at the gym, man, honestly, like 12 hours a day, it feels like sometimes, um, and I'm, I'm here all day and, and I, I go home and I write. And so, uh, it's, I take myself more seriously than I did then too. Hey Zach, um,
1: you can hear me, right? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, because I was uncertain of that a minute ago. Rick asked you a question about, you know, the loneliness that we hear that people have. Um, But I also think, and I think you would agree because it's embedded in the book as one of the themes in the book, that some of that loneliness is um, geographically or politically dependent. For instance, uh, you know, in L.A., the teachers' unions, you know, kept the schools closed for two years. And. They finally opened them, and uh, you know, this week they've uh, they're on strike again. Uh, God knows what. I mean, what well, you know, they didn't work for two years, so now I guess they got to get more money, right? Um, but that those we we didn't have the kinds of experiences that our friends in um, in other places did, uh, like uh, like in New Jersey, being being cooped up all the time. We weren't cooped up. Talk about. Talk about, uh, you, you know, your, your experience of being in Texas and then being in L.A. and, and some of the things I just mentioned.
3: Well, in Texas, uh, we opened back up. Um, we opened back up two months in. Right. And so we opened up in May. Our gym opened up in mid-May. And we just kept training all the way through. Our school doubled in size um, from, like, March 2020. Uh like a year and a half later, our school doubled in size, um, so a lot of people moved here from California. a lot of people moved here from New York and New Jersey um, as you know B teams right around the corner um, and then uh, John Donaherst's teams up the street. those are two of the best highest, most competitive teams in the world, and most of the leadership at both of those schools is from both uh, is from uh New York and New Jersey. They were training together in Henzo's gym. Uh and then it got shut down. They all moved to Puerto Rico and then they all moved out out here. Um and and just the experience of going back to LA um after, you know, being basically free here for a year and a half uh, up to the point when I went out to LA for this book uh to have that experience out there was it was a very shocking experience and um there are a lot of lifestyles out there. Where people could be like hyper lonely right now, especially if they were to believe that they, if they were to believe that they should stay inside or they should avoid people, and you'll sometimes even still see people like proudly tweeting that they're wearing a mask on the airplane because they're uh, they usually don't hang around people. Um, so there's a lot of people now who have also been scared into loneliness as well, um, which is super damaging and has been one of the one of the main. Uh, probably one of the main problems of, of COVID was was that loneliness that Rick spoke to um, and the idea that a lot of these people uh, – a lot of people have spent a lot of time alone the last few years, so there's no better environment than to come in here, make yourself uncomfortable for a little bit. The hardest thing is, is to come into a gym for the first time, um, but there's a lot of people in this, you know, 20 – like we're looking – you're you've settled into your career a little bit you've got enough money to pay the dues every month you know we're looking at those kids that are 25 26 years old through to like you know the 34 year old 35 year old that whole 10 year group right there um there's a lot of people who would benefit uh and and have a long road ahead of them in terms of ability to train i mean you could get your black belt at 50 you could you know um and, and these the net good that comes from uh, a jiu-jitsu community is uh, unmistakable and undeniable.
1: Well, Zach, we've kept you for 45 minutes of thereabouts, So So um, we've covered a lot of waterfront, but is there anything that we should have talked about that you would want people to know about this book or, or alternatively, um, you know, uh, how, what, how, what would you, what, what recommends uh, this book to people in your mind?
3: Um, I mean, I think the writing style um, and the story that's told, uh, I wanted to give like a, you know, I wanted to give you a, a great American novel, right? Like, I, And obviously it's not a novel because it's not fiction, right? But I wanted to give you a story that kind of captures a lot of the American story, right? I mean, I mentioned that with James and Eddie um, along the way. I wanted to capture um, everything we're trying to be, everything that's getting getting in the way of what we're trying to be. Um, you know, as I as that book progresses, the aggressive nature of that first page gets more and more tame over the course of the book. As I go on this trip and I meet meet uh, Danny Loner and Danny's worried about James getting COVID because James is sick. Um, you know, so as I go through that story, I really capture the human experience of that time um, in a way that I think I wanted to write something that would be have a historical uh, relevance, and would be around for a long time, both in the fact that we'll learn about Eddie and learn about what makes him who he is. And also we'll learn about a moment in time and and what made Eddie write about that time and what makes this time interesting. And um, there's a lot in there and and it's a fun read. I've gotten everyone who's read it so far uh, really enjoys that, thinks it's a fun read, and uh, and i'm I'm excited to see how it goes uh, starting next week.
1: Well it is a really good book and and I'm not just saying that because I'm your dad you Zach knows uh, Rick that um, uh, when when uh, when the prose sucks, he hears it from me. Um, I would imagine and um, you know probably in uh, in unvarnished terms, but um, I read this manuscript four times with Zach because it goes through revision. I read the uh, Caponomics manuscript maybe eight or nine. That and one took more yeah. reading. Uh, well, you know, I think you're a better writer now than then. And that's, you know, that's, that, that's how it should be, right? But, and people, when I tell them that, they look at me like, I have four heads. What'd you do? But, the, but you know, and I did that with a couple of my, you know, my books that I published that, I, you know, uh, really, really had um, uh, led what I thought were legs, like Success Built to Last. Probably read that eight or nine times. And, and what's interesting about reading a manuscript that's really good that many times is that each time you can see it improve. And that in and of itself is fun. But uh, much like you, you talked about in jujitsu, you know, there's no end of the season and therefore, you know, each time you get a little better, it's, you know, it's that, that sort of um, constant in, in, increase in quality. So, you know, people out there, this is really very good. And the book is Mastering the Metal, the story of James Watson and Eddie Bravo. It publishes next week. But it's available, uh, you know, anywhere that uh, books are sold now, at least on the Internet, like Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com, et cetera, et cetera. And it'll be available physically in bookstores all over the country. And,
2: and audiobook.
1: All
3: over the world. Audiobook, too, in case you can't oh, yes, read.
1: the audiobook, which you read. I forgot about the audiobook because yeah, I don't yeah. listen to audiobooks, so it's never in my consciousness. Hey,
3: some people can't read. Some well, people can't I've read.
1: We got I told you, my old friend Pete. You know, he 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 hasn't literally physically read a book. I don't think in thirty years. That's true. Uh, you know, I I don't get that, but okay, that's the way he does it. So that's fine. Well, thank well, you, uh... Zach and uh, Rick. Uh, <clears throat> I'll let you sign off. What do you think?
2: You bet. Thank you both for being on today, and uh, Zach. Um, congratulations on completing the book, and um. I, I hope that uh, our listeners are going to purchase it and buy it and learn more about um, your, the entire field of MMA, but also comedy and music and this fusion of things. So uh, it's Mastering the Metal. It's available debuting March the 28th. And go out and purchase it or listen to it uh, as an audio book. Hey, folks, thanks for joining us today. And as we always say, we wish you a successful life